So go ahead and turn, please, to 1 Peter chapter 3. And we are going to read together verses 18 down to chapter 4, verse 6. Hopefully we'll get that right today. We'll see. Is that the right scripture? Is it in there? Okay, good. Okay. (laughs) All right. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, namely baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, When we walked in licentiousness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking, parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Lord, thank you for your word. We trust that, as always, you will be our teacher and our guide as we seek to understand and to grow closer to you through all of this, Lord. We realize as we read it, there are some challenges here before us today, but we trust that you'll Uh, Make it clear and plain to us as we understand the suffering of our Savior for our salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It was interesting, last week I uh, received a comment from someone who uh, said to me that that this that was the most gospel-centered message they had ever heard. And I praise God for that, but it wasn't planned in that way. It was just the passage that we were in. And here we are today with, with more of it. Because Peter, you remember, of course, he was one of Jesus' disciples and probably the one who was the most prominent, the most talked about, the one who had the greatest highs and the lowest lows. And I think his failure as he denied his Lord, probably pressed in his heart and mind so deeply that his value for what Jesus did for him and for us uh, so greatly marked him that he can't talk about Christ without talking about what he did in securing our salvation. And Peter, like Paul, you know, Paul's very passionate about the gospel as well. Peter brings his own understanding of it because of his time with Jesus. And, you know, like so many of us, I don't know about you, this happens to me all the time, you know, on the other side of salvation, the more you read God's word and the more you study it, the more you understand. And, you know, I don't know about you, having those aha moments, right, where you're reading and you're like, I know I've read this before because all these other passages are marked or whatever, but this one isn't, but I see it and I know I've read it. But there it is, just like shouting at me. And I I hope and I pray that today as we go through this passage, perhaps some of that would be true for you as well. As he continues here, he says, 
for Christ also suffered once for sins. Now, he's already been talking up to this point in time a little bit about suffering. And, and what it will cost us, you know, there will be suffering in this life just because we're human beings. But there will also be suffering if you're a believer in Christ and if you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, there will be suffering. And that's, that's plain, that's just simple, that's straightforward. Jesus himself said that. He said that would be true. That would happen to us simply because we are saved, because we believe in him. But he's going to dig in here today and go deep on this issue of salvation. For Christ, verse 18, also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. There's a lot here in this one verse. So first of all, we understand that Jesus suffered. And let us not think for one moment that even though Jesus suffered for our sins, that we will get off from suffering in this life. In fact, it says in the book of Hebrews, it says, you have not yet come to bloodshed and you're striving against sin. He'll hint at that a little bit today as we go through these passages. And yet, isn't our great battle now as believers in Jesus Christ in our struggle against sin? Now, we, if you're walking with Christ and his spirit is within you, you know when you say and do things that are displeasing to him. Hopefully his Holy Spirit just reminds you, but certainly if his spirit doesn't, his word will. And so Jesus suffered once for sins, and the idea here in the language, in the tenses and all of that, means once for all. It means of perpetual validity, not requiring repetition. So Jesus did it once, and that was enough. And that stands in contrast to the Old Testament system, where there always had to be a sacrifice for sin. For smaller types of sins, there would be smaller offerings. And certainly there was the Day of Atonement that happened once a year. But it says here that Jesus suffered once for sins. On the day of Yom Kippur, it's estimated, especially in those days that Jesus was alive, that the Jewish Passover would see as many as 225 to 250,000 sheep slaughtered on behalf of the families. When you think about one animal. I don't know if you've ever been around a farm or been somewhere where you've seen an animal slaughtered. I have. Um, and, and it's a sobering process to watch, even if it's just for food. But to think of that happening to that many animals on that day is just overwhelming. The amount of blood that would be flowing out of the temple, I mean, it would be so surreal when you see it, to be reminded that that was necessary, it was required because of sin. Remember the sheep had to be without spot or blemish, which was a picture, of course, of the Messiah, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who would one day come and take away the sin of the world. And it said there, the just for the unjust. Remember that Jesus never sinned. He never once sinned. Can any of us get through one day, let alone a few hours, without sinning? Consider this, that with Jesus, he never had a single thought, word, action, deed that did not fully please God. When I think of myself, I, can, I hardly have a thought, word, action, or deed that pleases God even a little. And that alone should convince us of our need for the Savior. In 2 Corinthians 5, we find where God says, For he, that is God the Father, made him, Jesus the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So through Jesus himself, we have become righteous before God. That, it says in this verse, the reason or the purpose is that he might bring us to God. All of these songs we sang today, was de were designed around what we're studying this morning. 
to help us understand that he wanted to bring us to God. Now, have you ever had the experience, I know I have, where you're like, I'd like to get this person connected with that person because they, you know, I'm not talking about setting up on dates. I'm just saying, you know, uh, that they would really hit it off, right? They would be good friends. They have a lot in common. Well, Jesus couldn't wait to bring us to God. That's how much he loves you and he loves me. But he couldn't. You see, he was prevented because of our sin from bringing us into the very presence of God. So it took something extraordinary to make that happen. The price of admission had to be paid. The way had to be paved with blood. And so he made it possible for us to come to God, to have an audience at the court of the king. You see, this is the gospel message, that you and I can be brought to God, that we can come before his presence with joy and not with trembling. We can come before his presence knowing that we now have access to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And when Jesus died on the cross and we're told that the veil in the temple was torn in two, Remember, he said, uh, into thy hands I, I, you know, I cast my spirit. And then he said, to Telestai, it is finished. And then the veil in the temple was torn in two. And the, that veil that separated the, the holy place from the most holy place was now made accessible because no more did it require, and Hebrews goes into this in great extent, no more did it require the blood of bulls and goats to make it so that we could have a way in to the Father. In fact, of course, the priest was acting as a mediator. And then Paul, writing to Timothy later, said, There is only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And it's not saying that Jesus is now standing there preventing us from getting to God. You know, like you sort of picture the idea of a, of a guard standing there saying, okay, now just you tell me and I'll get the message to him. You just stay right there. You can't come any further. No, what Jesus did is he tore the veil and then he stepped aside and he said, come on in. And that's what he's done for us. Paul writing in Romans 5 said, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And then Ephesians 2, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father, meaning Jews and Gentiles. Ephesians 3, 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Hebrews six nineteen. this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence, capital P, behind the veil. You see, Jesus prepared the way for us. And it says in Hebrews 6.20 to continue, where the forerunner, speaking of Jesus, has entered for us, even Jesus, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And then the last part of verse 18, being put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit. Jesus was God incarnate, and he humbled himself to come to this earth for us. So he died in his body, the flesh, but his spirit never died. And in that sense, he was the forerunner. He was the firstborn over all creation. Then we come to this passage here in verses 19 and 20 where it says, speaking of Jesus, by whom, by speaking of the Spirit, by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. Now it's interesting later in 2 Peter, Peter wrote this phrase speaking of Paul. He said, I like Paul, I'm paraphrasing, but he writes things that are hard to understand. And then you read this passage and you think, did you read what you wrote in your first letter, Peter? What are you talking about here? By whom, 
he, Jesus, went and preached to the spirits in prison. Well, before we get into that, and I have some slides because there's a few scriptures here that we need to walk through. These are challenging things, and there's not, every, not everyone who is learned about these things agrees. But one of the things we learn here is that by whom he went and preached to the spirits in prison, when he speaks of people, he uses the word for soul. Here, the word for spirits is used, and it seems to be referring to the fallen angels. And so we'll talk about that as we get into this in just a moment. And notice it says, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. Now, you may remember what brought about the flood and God telling Noah, of course, to build the ark. And we find in the, Old, the New Testament, speaking back of Noah's process in the Old Testament, that he was a preacher of righteousness, and God said, I want you to build this ark, and then you're going to take these animals in because I'm going to bring a flood on the earth to judge it. Now, earlier in Genesis chapter 6, we have this bizarre passage, which certainly not everyone agrees on. It's called, um, these people called the sons of God went into women, we're told. And the general consensus is that those were fallen angels who had sort of left their proper abode. They crossed over. They went in and mated with human women and created giants. And you may have heard the term Nephilim. And when that happened, it would seem God was, of course, greatly displeased by that. By that. And then he, uh, things began to happen on the earth Uh, You know, it just took a a real left-hand turn sideways, morally, spiritually, in every way. And that's what brought about God calling Moses, raising him up, Moses, Noah, and raising him up to build the ark. Now, I want to mention a couple of um, things here, and then we'll get into these scriptures that we want to take a look at. The word hell, as we see it often translated in the English has um, a few different Greek words that mean very different things. Sometimes the word hell is just translated lower parts of the earth. Often the most common usage is in the Old Testament you see the word sheol. And in the New Testament, the New Testament equivalent of that word sheol is Hades. And they both refer to what we call the netherworld or the grave. And I think this is where the Catholic faith took this and kind of did a spin-off and called it purgatory. It's not purgatory. Uh, but they called it a Sheol or Hades in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the netherworld or the grave. And presumably this is the place that all of the Old Testament saints went while they were waiting for the redemption through Jesus Christ the Messiah. This is alluded to in Hebrews 11 and other places, which talks about things like they they died having not realized or seen the promise of their salvation. There's also a word, hell, which is Gehenna. And that is what we think of for the most part. <clears throat> when we think of hell, it's the place of eternal torment and judgment, the place where flames are there and, and people are in torment. And we talked about this when we went through the book of Revelation. There's another word in Second Peter chapter 2 that's used only once that speaks of a special prison for the fallen angels. It's called Tartarus, and we'll we'll look at that in a moment. So it says when Jesus went and preached to these spirits who were in prison, the word preached there is not the normal word we think for preaching. Often we think of the word evangelizing. This is not the word for evangelizing. It's the word for preaching or proclaiming. So what we understand, and some of this is reasoning, is that likely the time between his death on the cross when he breathed his last and his resurrection on Sunday morning, Jesus was not at rest. He was doing something. And we believe he did at least a couple of things. One of those things is that he went to the prison where these angels are kept, these spirits, And that he proclaimed something to them. Now, what was proclaimed to them is a matter of speculation. But what most people believe is that he didn't go to preach the gospel to them because angels cannot be redeemed. 
but he went to tell them of his victory. That it was true that he was the Messiah and that all of the evil efforts that were made throughout history to thwart the bloodline of the Messiah, to prevent Jesus from becoming the Messiah. Remember Satan himself, of course, tempted Jesus during those 40 days leading up to him coming out of the desert and going out and beginning his ministry. And as Satan tempted him, he tried to get him to do all of these things. And the last one was he attempted to get Jesus to worship him. And so Jesus, we believe, proclaimed to these spirits that the victory was won. That because he went through the death, burial, and resurrection, that he was truly Lord over all. So if you don't mind bringing up those slides, please. Hopefully this is going to work. Praise God. All right. No. Uh. Okay. We'll get that fixed in just a second. No, he's bringing up the slides, not me. So we don't need airplay. There you go. <laughs> Four. Uh, so we want to look at some scriptures. We've got about five or six slides. So if you'll give me a little latitude and bear with me here, I'll try to walk you through this, then bring you back to what it means. And I'm happy to give you guys all this stuff on PDF if you want it. So the first scripture we want to look at is in Second Peter. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, that's that word Tartarus used only once in the entire Bible, and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, referring again to Noah, but save Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which happened later, into ashes, condemn them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. So we're in the same ballpark here as what this passage of Scripture is talking about. Interestingly, in um, the book of Jude, you see the same thing. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, this is where people make the crossover back to Genesis 6 and the Nephilim. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And we saw this again in the book of Revelation as God opened the abyss and allowed them out for that one last romp on the earth before he cast them away. And then he again made the same reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. In verse 8, Likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. So he speaks basically these, these evil spirits, these demons, these fallen angels were out of control. So if you go on to the next slide, please. Now speaking of Jesus, you know, this sort of gets to the idea of the message. What did Jesus perhaps proclaim to these spirits? Therefore God also has highly exalted him. And given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth. Now we know on that great day at the end of time, everyone will bow, but it just makes us wonder, okay, speculation, that when Jesus went to preach to these spirits in heaven, was part of it that they had to bow their knee to him in that moment as he proclaimed the victory. Interesting to think about. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Did he make them say uncle when he made this proclamation to them? And again, judges, the angels who do not keep their proper domain, just to help us kind of keep that in perspective. Next slide. It's interesting. So here, then some of the scribes and Pharisees saying, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered and said to them, an evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was, what, three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be where? Three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Okay, so where did Jesus go between his dying breath and his resurrection? Somewhere to the heart of the earth. And what we're trying to get after here is what did he do? Well, certainly he preached the spirits in heaven, into, excuse me, into prison. Isaiah 61 is the passage that Jesus used. Remember when he started his ministry? It's Luke chapter 4, I believe. And he, he went into the synagogue, right? This is after he came out of the temptation. And as he goes in, they hand him a scroll, and he opens it to the book of Isaiah. And this is what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, 
Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. We'll get to that in a minute in the book of Ephesians, but certainly the captives are those captivated by sin. But we wonder, could it also be referring to what he had to do here between his death and his resurrection and the opening of the prison to those who are bound? To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Next slide. We're sort of building sort of a case here. Uh, Acts 2. You may remember uh, this proclamation here on the day of Pentecost by Peter. This is in his sermon. And he quotes in Acts 2 from Acts 16, the passage. Uh, well, we didn't read Acts. Yeah, we read 16 this morning. That's right. We, we almost read 15, but we read 16. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you, this is the Messiah speaking to his father, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. What do you mean you won't leave your son in Hades? Well, he had to go there. He had a mission. Uh, you have made known to me the ways of life. And so, again, Psalm 16. Next slide. Uh, Jesus, get this, Acts, Matthew 27. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit when he died on the cross. And then, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. When Jesus died, people who had previously died were resurrected. What's that all about? And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, and they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So we'll come back to that. Ephesians 4, maybe you're familiar with this one, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. And gave gifts to men. What's that referring to? Now this he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Is there another slide or is that the last one? That's it. Okay. You can turn them off. Thank you. So what are we talking about here? There's something that Jesus did. And I believe based on these scriptures, he probably did two things. He went to these fallen angels and preached to these spirits. He proclaimed to them, I believe, his victory, that the victory was won and that they had been defeated. I also believe, based on the Ephesians passage, that he probably went and spoke to the Old Testament saints and those who had been looking forward to the Messiah and to free them from Sheol and to usher them into heaven. He led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. You may remember in Luke 16, Jesus also gave sort of a, some call it a parable, some wonder if he's not actually giving insight into the spirit realm and where he talked about the rich man and Lazarus. And he said, you know, in life, the rich man fared sumptuously, and the poor man, you know, had sores, and he was always at a disadvantage, and he laid by the gates begging. And then he fast-forwarded to, uh, they've both died and passed from this life into the next, and the roles are switched. The rich man is in a place of torment called Hades, and the uh, Poor man, Lazarus, is now over in what's called Abraham's bosom. And as you read it, you get the sense uh, that, you know, there was people there who said, you know, we want you to, the, the, the rich man, we want you to go back and preach to our brothers. We want you to send someone back from the dead and tell them not to come here. Tell them to make the right choice to believe in Jesus. And remember, Abraham said, uh, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father, but if somebody goes from the dead, they'll repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. 
So what's all this leading up to? I believe to me it's pointing to a couple of things. Jesus didn't just die on the cross and his blood is good enough for our sins. Jesus' salvation was complete. He went to the, the spirits in prison, I believe, and proclaimed uh, his victory over death. You know, he, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, you know, oh, death, where is your sting? You know, grave, where is your victory? Letting them know that all of their evil efforts went to naught. And then in liberating the captives, those who had gone before us, and again, I believe the Hebrews 11 alludes to this pointing back, saying they had all died not realizing, not having received the promise, but then on that day when Jesus went and liberated them, they received the promise. They saw it with their own eyes. They, if you will, entered into the promised land of the salvation of Jesus Christ. I believe this points to a few things. I believe it points to the fact of God's omnipresence. You know, if I go down to to hell, you were there. If I make my my bed in the depths, you were there. We're going to sing that song at the end just to help emphasize it for us. And he is omnipresent. There is nowhere that he is not. And his salvation, what he did on the cross was effective not only from then forward, but from then backwards to secure the salvation of all who had believed in the promise of the Messiah, but they didn't see him. They, they never got to be with Jesus. They didn't have a Bible to read like we have that tells us the whole story. They only had the hope that was given to them, which, which is that one day the Messiah is coming Going all the way back to Genesis 3 saying one day there is one whose heel will crush the head of the serpent. That was their gospel. And so they were freed from that. All of that to say this. By whom he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. You see, the water of judgment became the waters of salvation for those who believed and went into the ark. But those same waters became waters of judgment to those who did not believe. And Jesus overcame all of it. When we see that next verse there, verse 21, he says, there's also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus. So he's making sort of an an strange argument here that uh, the waters of baptism as we understand, he's not saying that baptism saves us, but that the the waters of baptism delivered us. They, They point to the fact that when we are baptized, we're professing and proclaiming our faith in Jesus Christ. And so it's important for us to do that. It's not necessary for salvation. The, the, the whole of the New Testament tells us that. I mean, Paul even says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. It's not a focus on baptism, but baptism points us to something. And those who witness our baptism point us to something, which is this, I believe in Jesus. And that he has saved me. He is able to save me. He is the one who was resurrected from the dead. And his blood became like baptism waters. They deliver me just like the waters delivered delivered Noah's ark to safety and those in it. So shall we in Christ, who is a type of Noah's ark, be delivered from the waters of judgment. Baptism simply means to dip or to immerse for the purpose of being identified with. And so we are identified with Jesus Christ through baptism. Verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Jesus' victory was complete because when he ascended into heaven, He ascended to the right hand of God the Father. He took his place beside God, 
Psalm 110 was fulfilled where it says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. We are living in that period while we're waiting for the enemies to be made his footstool. In Acts 2, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, which you now see and hear. This is part of what Peter was proclaiming on the day of Pentecost. Romans 8, Paul says this, who is he who condemns? Christ died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. This is what Jesus is doing for us now. And then Ephesians 1 says this, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality, all power and might and dominion, and every name that is named not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. This is where Jesus is now as a result of what he did to secure our salvation. Now, as we go into chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Who among us has suffered in the flesh for our sin? Very few, if any of us. But Christ suffered for us. And because Jesus suffered, he's saying that we should arm ourselves with this mindset. What mindset? If you'll turn back with me to Philippians chapter 2. Here's what we're told. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming the likeness of men. And being being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. And became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him. And given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Of those in heaven and those on the earth. And of those under the earth. That every tongue should confess. That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is the mind? It's this mind. That Jesus Although he suffered, he secured everything for us. The depth to which he went to secure our salvation is far deeper and greater and wider than we can ever know. And we arm ourselves with the truth. I believe this is in part why in the, the, the list of the uh, armament of the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 6, we are told to put on the helmet of salvation. When we get attacked in our minds about our salvation and our sinfulness, and perhaps we keep failing over and over in the same areas of sin, we are reminded that I'm saved not because I redeem myself, because I can't. Hopefully we've proven that. But because Jesus has. So we arm ourselves with that mindset that he is our savior and we are under his authority and Uh, Maybe we don't suffer in the flesh the way he does, but when we do suffer because of our sin, it should be a reminder to us, verse 2, that we should no longer live the rest of our time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. 
And we're reminded that we are bought with the blood of Christ. We are not our own. We are bought with that price. There's so many scriptures here. Uh, Galatians 4. There you, therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son or a daughter. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not God's. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? We see this pattern. We're going to be looking at it in the book of Exodus. The children of Israel will get delivered from the incredible bondage and the abuse and the beatings under the hand of the Egyptians. They'll get out there in the wilderness. God is taking care of them, providing water, providing manna and all of that. And they'll be complaining. You know what? We had it so much better in Egypt. Everything was better there. Even the beatings were better than not knowing what's coming. And they come to the place of saying, it's harder to trust God than it is to go through the beatings in this earth and receive the wages of sin. And that is not the mindset we want to have. And I think Peter is helping these pilgrims who are wandering to understand this is not where you want to be. He just made a case for the airtight, you know, declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And then he says in verses 3 and 4 here, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. Just a way of saying those who don't know God and who live in sin. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. When I think back to that, it's not saying, boy, those were the good old days. It's saying, thank God I'm not there anymore. Thank God I'm redeemed from it. In regard to these, they, meaning who? Whoever out there who's not redeemed, they look at you, thinking it strange that you you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. Well, who are you? Well, you you can't come out. Oh, you got to go to bed. Oh, you, you can't stay out late. You can't go to the bar with us. I mean, you don't have to drink. Just sit with us. Just be with us. Come on, don't be a fuddy-duddy. Don't be a stooge. Come and, you know, don't, come and hang out. Have some fun. You, you can drink Shirley Temples. You can drink sparkling water. You don't have to drink. But you know what happens, right? This is the strategy of Satan. Just a little bit, right? Just get you there. Okay, well, I'm not going to drink. I'm just going to go, right? And just step by step. Just wearing you down until, okay, fine, I'll have one drink. It's, it's not going to hurt. I'm just going to have one. And then one turns into ten. And then you're back to where you were before you were saved. And he says, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. He reminds us of something. Even though we have the salvation through Jesus, this great grace so rich and so free. He said, there is a day coming. Don't don't be deceived. When they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, I believe he's referring here to the great white throne. But just to help us keep this in perspective, in 2 Corinthians 5, it tells us this. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is the Bema seat. This is the judgment for believers. That each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. But I believe what he's referring to in verse 5 is for those unbelievers who were, you know, railing on you and saying, oh, you don't want to come and, you know, be with us. He's saying they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Great white throne. I, here's the thing, all right? Go back and listen to that message. It's Acts, uh, excuse me, Revelation chapter 20. I think I was on vacation and Pastor Mitch preached that Sunday. And I got to listen to his message afterwards and I was blown away at the gravity with which the, the Spirit spoke through him. Here's the passage. Then I saw a great white throne 
and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. You said, we think nobody sees. God sees. He's keeping an eternal record, better than AI. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were with them, excuse me, who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. That's the end of Hades. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is what he's talking about here in verse 5. We shouldn't be cavalier in this. We, we shouldn't look at those who don't know Christ and say, well, good riddance. Hopefully our hearts are broken for those who do not know Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 10, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him, that is God, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And then he finishes this off in verse 6 by saying, For this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. What does it mean here when it says the gospel was also preached to those who are dead? Two possibilities. One is what we already discussed earlier about Jesus preaching in Sheol. I don't think that's what it's referring to here. I believe what this is referring to is what the rest of the New Testament says when speaking of those who don't know Christ, that we are dead in our trespasses and our sins until we hear and respond to the gospel. So when he says here, for this reason, all these things that we've just talked about, for this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Romans 10 says this, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Later in Romans 14, Paul said this, For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. All of this today... Jesus is suffering for our salvation. And I believe this passage as much or more than any other that we have in the Bible shows us the depth and the extent to which Jesus went to secure our salvation. And what he did was complete. His work was complete. It wasn't half a work. It wasn't partial. It was fully complete. Jesus redeemed the Old Testament saints. He preached to the spirits in prison. He's preached to us all throughout history and generations. And it even says in Hebrews 4, we were looking at this actually this week in a smaller group, and you may know that passage there that says he gave some as apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists for you know, teaching the church and, and solidifying the church and making them mature. And he says, until we all attain the unity of the faith, which will be on that great day when we are all around the throne of God together. And it's amazing when we think about the people that God has provided. Think about all the churches everywhere. Don't even get into you know, the ones that maybe are apostate and that kind of a thing. But just let's talk about the good churches. The ones where God in... in all over the world, raises up people and anoints and ordains them to go in 
and to do what we're doing, meet together, and he puts a faithful person there to preach and to teach God's word, who's loyal to the scriptures, and to build up the body and to teach. This is something only God could do. And you know how this happens? I can't, I tell you, I've talked to so many pastors. They're sitting one day reading their Bible, God speaks to them. They're sitting like you right now, listening to a message, and God speaks to them like a bolt of lightning. And they're like, I, I got I to gotta do something. He's calling me. And they go. I think of my son-in-law, Landon. I'm so overwhelmed. I, can't, I mean, when you're trying to pick a husband for your daughter, God did it, right? I couldn't do it. I couldn't make that happen. It's just amazing. God is so faithful. And all of this proves, if, just, if you have to boil all this down to one thing, it's this. God loves you. And he's paid the price of your salvation. Will you believe that? And will you live in it? Will you walk in it? Think of what he's done for you. How could you say no? Lord Jesus, we love you. We bless you. Thank you for speaking to us this morning. Thank you for how you have just ministered to us so deeply, so wonderfully, so passionately. Lord, all these things to speak of the height, the depth that you've gone to. There, there is no place that you have not been. And yet your, your redemption is so complete. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done. And Lord, I pray here today that for all listening, that if they have not yet believed and received, that they would do so right now, that they would put their faith and their trust in Jesus and Jesus alone and be saved and ensure that their names are written in the book of life. And then on that great day when we stand before you and the books are open and they read our name and we'll hear, come on in. Lord, that's what we want. And until then, Lord, deliver us through this life. Deliver us through uh, the waves and the storms and all of that and the, the, just the world that hates you. That some days, Lord, we just like can't stand it. We just feel like we can't take it anymore because of the evil. But yet you've placed your church here. And for such a time as this, until the day that you call us home, And so we're not done until we hear your trumpet. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Fill us with your love. Cause our salvation to be real to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.